Hear now the word of God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, every person in this room knows some measure of suffering one way or another. Would you give us your presence tonight and the confidence that comes from hearing your word? Would you feed our souls and give life to our weariness? We need Jesus. Send him to us tonight, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody once asked Cicero, the Roman philosopher, what the purpose of philosophy was. And Cicero said that the main task of philosophy was to teach us how to face death. And I think in a sense, that's the main task of pastoring too. Um, And I would also add this one little line though. I I would also say that the purpose of pastoring is also to teach us how to suffer, especially God's people. Um, And my question for you this evening is, Do you expect suffering to happen in your life? Or when it happens, do you see it as a side thing that is a distraction from the main purpose and the main substance of what your life is supposed to be? I know it might might seem strange for a pastor to say this, but I actually hope you expect suffering in your life. Um, It's very hard to read the Bible without at least realizing that suffering is something that we should expect, something that we should have on our horizons. One commentator that I was looking at says, suffering is like the wake that follows behind salvation's boat. I can't remember who I mentioned that to. They didn't know what a wake was. We're not talking about a funeral. We're talking about the wake that follows behind a boat. And so he's saying, suffering is the wake that follows behind salvation's boat. If you've boated at all, you know it's impossible, even at a low speed, not to generate a wake as you're in the water. I think one time R.C. Sproul said that many preachers make it sound like coming to Jesus is going to solve all of your problems, that your life's going to get easier. And Sproul's complaint was he felt like his troubles didn't even start until he came to Jesus. That's when all the troubles seemed like they really began. And our passage is a passage about suffering. It's a, it's a passage, though, uh, about a very specific kind of suffering, and it's one that I feel fairly confident in saying we don't know much of, if any, and that is persecution. Persecution is the sort of suffering Peter's talking about here. Peter, as you might recall, is writing in a context of a group of Christians who are strangers and sojourners in a strange land. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. And so these are Christians who live in a place where they stand out like a sore thumb. They are oddities. 
Uh, People look at these Christians and they just stand out because they don't live like this place. They don't belong in this place. And they run against the grain of the place where they find themselves. And Peter tells them in chapter 4 that persecution should not come as a surprise. 1 John chapter 3, John tells us we should not be surprised when the world hates us. And so in a culture where Christians are in the minority, especially the one that Peter's living in, that's certainly true. But I also think this is part of the reason why we generally, in the United States, in the West, and even if you get more specific, in the South, and even get more specific in Pearl, Mississippi, why we do not so much know persecution. Because we live in a time and a place where folks still don't exactly feel safe calling out or speaking out against Christianity. You see it a lot of places nationwide, and the more connected we are to the rest of the world, the more we start to feel that impulse. But one thing that we do see is at least this place where we find ourselves right now in the South, persecution is something that we don't really know. Now, persecution is real, and it happens all over the world. The the, the Christian church in China right now is undergoing radical persecution by the state. It's a road that we don't exactly know where it ends. The state is shutting down Christian churches and even going so far as to produce their own version of the Bible, the version of the Bible they find sanitary. Uh, Parents are being separated from their children. Average church members are having their homes raided. Doors are being kicked in. Offices are being dismantled and destroyed, and these Christians are being thrown into prison. And in some cases, they're actually being put in solitary confinement for incredibly lengthy periods of time. This is real, and it is actually happening. Christians should expect persecution when we live in a non-Christian culture. When we push against the world, we should expect the world to push back. And I think sometimes as American Christians, we feel guilty because we aren't persecuted. We know the text where it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we hope we're living godly lives. We hope we're living in a way that pleases him. And yet maybe there has been this nagging question, why haven't I been persecuted? Why are all my battles in here? You know, in my heart, in my soul, they're not really happening with the world around me. Is something wrong? Have I compromised myself? And I think if each of us look into our past, we would probably see that um, what we would describe as difficult times in our faith were not times of persecution, generally speaking. I remember when I was in school and when I was in high school, there was a boy who, who made fun of me because I followed my daddy's religion. And for some reason, that struck me as an incredible insult, and it doesn't today. (laughs) But at the time, I felt very picked on. Um, But honestly, I could look over my life. I had a coworker who called me Preacher Man because I listened to Christian radio. Um, So I had times where I got picked on, but it's hard to even call that persecution. And I think for many Christians in the West, there is this guilty feeling. Am I being unfaithful? Why don't I experience what Peter talks about here? Why is the world leaving me alone? The truth is, I suspect that most of us do not know persecution. I do think that if we look hard enough, we can look at the world around us and we can see Christians who are suffering and we can sort of suffer vicariously through them. We can really try and resonate with Masterpiece Bake Shop and think about their situation and, 
and think to ourselves, well, that's me too. I'm going through this as well. Or we can hear what's going on with Christians in China. And we remember those verses that where Paul says, when one member suffers, all suffer together. And maybe we can say, see, I'm suffering too. There is a sense in which we suffer with other Christians who suffer. But I think the solution to our lack of being persecuted in general is not for us to create a sense that we're being persecuted. And it doesn't mean that we should go around looking for fights either necessarily. Um, Instead, we should be realistic and honest. Let's be realistic about the time and the place where we find ourselves. Our lives in the pluralistic West are pretty peachy by almost any standard. That doesn't mean the world likes us. That doesn't mean that we won't get called names on the internet. People usually don't treat you like that in real life. But on the internet, they'll call you whatever they want. Um, But I don't think any of us really experience anything remotely close to what Peter envisioned here. And that makes preaching this passage a challenge because we don't know persecution. We We just don't. Certainly not the kind of systematic persecution that Christians experienced in the first century. Now, here is the situation as as I currently see it. And what I do expect is that you have felt tensions in your life as a Christian. You have had moments where you've had to make decisions that you knew would upset either a family member or an employer or somebody. Something you were going to have to do was going to leave you unpopular. But on the whole, very few of us have actually been blatantly persecuted in any way remotely like what Peter has in mind. I wouldn't say we don't live in a Christian culture. I would describe our culture as a culture in transition. Even in the 1950s and 60s, Flannery O'Connor said the South was a Christ-haunted place. The South is a place where the memory of Jesus resides. He haunts her halls, but they don't really know him. And for many people, he's just someone we remember, not a real presence anymore. And so for some time, our culture, even in the South, has been in transition. We are moving away from being anything resembling a Christian culture. Because if you think about it today, even rewind your, in your minds back to 20 years ago, people, it is not unusual today for people to live in public sin. And they probably would not have been willing to do it even 20 years ago. All right, so things are changing. People still go to church today, but church is increasingly becoming more about me and my life and my priorities. And in many respects, for many people who do go to church, God is someone who's sort of like my servant, whose greatest job is to fulfill me and keep me happy. And so what that means is that the culture is becoming secularized and even the churches are becoming secularized too. And so it's not a far step from that to a culture that views God as altogether unnecessary. And so what I'm saying is that in the South, we are in transition. We are not a Christian culture anymore. We're not a non-Christian culture yet, but we are well on our way. Just give it a few more years. And what that means is this. I have said a lot to bring us to this place. We need to prepare for the kind of grievous trials that Peter talks about. We will not always be seen as friends of society. I don't say this to be alarmist as much as to be realistic. Part of my duty and part of the duty of the elders of this church is to prepare you to endure the storms when they come and they will come. But I also think it's healthy for us to look at this term suffering 
the way Peter uses it here, and to broaden it out just a little bit, because we may not be persecuted here. And we may not be persecuted right now, but we know suffering in other ways. We know bodily suffering. We still live in a fallen world with pain and agony. We still get sick. We still lose loved ones. So while the world may not persecute us yet, soon it will be socially acceptable. While the world may not persecute us yet, there is a certain sense in which all of us are being daily refined by the fires of pain that we go through. And let me say something else. Suffering is better prepared before it happens. Um, If you are currently in a storm or what you would describe as a fiery trial, sometimes discussion about suffering can seem so academic and maybe even insensitive. And my goal, one of my goals as a pastor is to do what I can to help you prepare for suffering before it comes by telling you what God has to say. How is God going to fortify you for the storms that you are guaranteed to go through? And so my prayer and my hope is that God would grant you a resolve and a strength and a perspective that will help you before the suffering comes so that precisely what Peter talks about here is true for you. And so this evening, very briefly, let me look at two reasons Peter gives why we as Christians will be able to endure suffering when it comes, whether it's persecution or whether it is just the sufferings of this life. The first reason that suffering will result in our is that suffering will result in our being blessed. Suffering will result in our being blessed. In verse 6, Peter speaks to these persecuted people and he says very openly, you've been grieved by various trials. You know what it is to be hurt. You know what it is to be assaulted. You know what it is to be persecuted. You know what it is to go through the fire. So Peter is talking to people who are skilled sufferers. And what he says is that the fire does something when you go through it. it. It actually refines you. It doesn't destroy you. Because you're a Christian, you're not just burned up and ruined. He says it does something. It refines you. It strengthens you. It actually makes you more holy. This is what one writer says. He says, things put in the furnace properly can be shaped, refined, purified, and even beautified. Suffering, if faced and endured with faith, can in the end only make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. So this is sort of what's being envisioned here by Peter, that being put into the fire has this surface level pain to it, but then it's got, there's something bigger that's happening too, something greater that God is doing to us. I can't tell you How many Christians I've talked to who've said to me that the defining moment of their Christian life was not some moment of pleasure or comfort. The defining moment of their Christian life was an experience of suffering. Maybe they lost a family member. Maybe they had a a terrible sickness. Maybe they cried out to God in the depths of their pain. But whatever God taught them, it was in the crucible of pain. It was in the midst of suffering. And I know many people who have have said this to me, and I, I just mentioned, and if I mentioned their names, you would know them. People even from this church who, uh, as, I, as I would sit with them, they would say, I wouldn't trade in the suffering that I've gone through because it's changed me. I remember Flora Jones saying that to me. 
I remember her sitting in that chair and she couldn't even use her hands. And she told me, she said, I have been through so much, but I would never give it up because I love Jesus more than I would have if this didn't happen to me. And if you knew Flora and you know how she suffered, you would know what an incredible statement that is for somebody to say. Tim Keller has a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And the book is just peppered with testimonials by anonymous people who are sharing their experiences of suffering. And one of the sections is in the book is by a woman named Emily. And, uh, and Emily describes the desolation she felt of having her husband abandon her and their four children for another woman. And she talks about the fear and she talks about the anxiety and the pain and the rejection she felt and the anger and all the feelings that come along with this kind of situation. But then listen to what Emily says God used the suffering to do to her. This is from her. I've never had a big tragedy in my life. Never really had to depend on God. I mean, sure, I prayed and I saw God work, but not like this. I never had to rely on God truly, just fall on him and rest on him. When I needed God's comfort, the image in my head was me clinging to Jesus and him hugging me. My image now that I've been through this is me just completely collapsed and him carrying me. And it's awesome. She, she, her understanding of her need for God was absolutely, completely changed by pleasure, by comfort? No, by suffering. The pain is real. The sin that created the situation is unspeakable. And yet this woman can say, I've learned to rejoice when I suffer because I know God is shaping me and I know God is changing me and I know that he is teaching me what it is to trust. Even secular people who look at Christian suffering, actually notice this. There's a secular researcher. I want to see if I get her name right. Larissa McFarquhar. And she was researching people who suffered. And she was going into hospitals and she was just studying as randomly as she could uh, different people. And as she watched them suffer and looked at their situations and she would look at their religious views and look at their worldviews. And she came away with something. I think it's remarkable. She says this. There is a difference between religious and secular people when they suffer. I think that within many Christian traditions, there is much more of an acceptance of suffering as a part of life and not necessarily always a terrible thing because it can help you become a fuller person. So it's a secular lady speaking. Whereas at least in my limited experience, secular people hate suffering. They see nothing good in it. They want to eliminate it, and they see themselves as responsible for doing so. I, what an interesting thing for her to say. Why do you think she noticed this? It's because she was seeing the Bible's teaching worked out in people's lives. She's not a Christian. She has no dog in the fight, necessarily. But here's the deal. The Bible tells us we should expect suffering. And a biblically instructed Christian, when they suffer, they come to accept it. They come to understand it. And they know that God is doing something in it. I like how um, Tim Keller says it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this across well because it's from a larger point that he makes. But he's comparing how uh, secularism deals with suffering and how Christianity deals with suffering. And he says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows... 
Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. And I think, I think the larger point that he's, that he's making here is that secularism sees pain as like this parasite that's just here to ruin our lives. And Christianity sees sorrow as part of the world order that God is using for our good. What a different way of thinking about suffering. It's, it's like a beautiful reminder of, of what we see in that hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Do you remember that verse where it says, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We may not always see it and we may not always feel it, but the first reason that Peter says we can endure suffering is because God will use it to bless us. He will use it to refine us. He will use it to make us more holy. The second thing Peter points out in these verses is that suffering will end. Listen to these words from Peter. He says, For a little while you have been grieved by various trials. And then he points ahead too. He says, These trials happen so that our faith can be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a day coming when the suffering will end. It's not eternal. Uh, Sometimes that's the hope that we have. Sometimes that's the only hope that we have, especially when the suffering is happening, especially when we're in the midst of it. One of the stories that struck me the most uh, was the story of Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary who went to Burma and he went with his wife, Anne. And when they arrived in Burma, it was just immediately miserable. The, The heat was 108 degrees in a tropical climate. Uh, They got cholera, malaria, dysentery, all these other diseases. And while they were living in Burma, he would actually lose three of his wives to these various diseases. And in, in 1823, Adoniram was arrested. He was beaten. His feet were tied to a long bamboo pole. And at night, they would actually hang the bamboo pole from the ceiling so that their shoulders and heads would just touch the floor. And they were expected to be able to sleep with their head and shoulders on the floor. And meanwhile, these mosquitoes would buzz around their bleeding feet and just drive them mad all night long. And there was nothing they could do about it. His suffering was immense. And on top of all of this, his pregnant wife would walk two miles a day to the prison where he was and ask the emperor, could he please have mercy? And while he was in prison, Judson was speaking to one of his fellow prisoners. And this is what he said. He said, It is possible my life will be spared. If so, with what enthusiasm shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be open for others who would do the work better anyway. So he's in prison for 17 months. He's finally released, but then his wife Anne died, broken health-wise by all that she'd been through. And then six months later, their daughter died also. And his whole ministry was consumed by suffering. He worked for years and barely even saw a convert at times. And then finally, his next wife, Sarah, died 11 years later. And when he eventually succumbed as well, he died in absolute pain. And he said his final words, how hard are the there are how few there are who die so hard. He always felt inadequate in his ministry. He always felt like he could do more. And his sufferings were immense all the while. His life 
as a missionary in Burma was all of the things Peter talks about here. Suffering, testing, refinement, proclamation. And yet we know this. His suffering lasted only a little speck of time compared to eternity. And today in Burma, there are over 3,000 Baptist congregations that trace their heritage to his life of suffering and sacrifice. As severe as they were, Judson was sustained by the knowledge that his sufferings were temporary. He knew there was a crown waiting for him. See, like Peter says, we do suffer, but we do so for a little while. Christian, you may be going through immense sufferings. I know, I know some in this congregation who struggle with chronic pain that they expect may last as long as they live. And some have so much pain that when I ask them how they're doing, they don't even tell me anymore because they're almost ashamed to mention the lifelong pain that they live with because it's become so much a part of their lives. I want you to hear what Peter says here. Your sufferings are real, but they are temporary. There is a crown waiting. They may be incredibly intense, but they will not. They will not last forever. And all of this means something else that we need to know when we're suffering. Suffering for the Christian is never meaningless. Suffering is never purposeless. Suffering is never random. Suffering never happens to no end for no reason. God uses it to refine us. He uses it to change us. He uses it to grow us. You say you love Jesus? God will tug at that claim. He will stretch it. He will work it. He will test you. He will give you opportunities to show that these aren't just words spoken in the midst of comfort. We can say anything when we're comfortable. We can say anything when everything is going great. But what will we testify to in the dark hour of our suffering? That is where you hear the truth from a person. What sustains you in that moment? Peter says, the genuineness of your faith does something when it's tested and when we endure it. He says, when we're tested, we grow in the faith. God gets the glory. The one who carried you and held you During the hardest times, he gets the glory. I want you to draw your attention to one last thing that Peter says about suffering. But before we do, let me remind you what he said. He says Christians can rejoice while suffering because he uses it to change us. And he uses it to shape us. And he uses it to make us more holy. The second thing he said was suffering is temporary. There is a day coming when it will end. It won't last forever, even if it does seem that way, especially in the moment. But look at what else Peter says at the very end. He says, the genuineness of our faith shows in the way that we suffer. And what happens with that genuine faith? Peter says, it results in something. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every time that we suffer and we do it while declaring the greatness of God, something happens, the world looks at us and they think that's really weird. They think that's really weird. And then they think something else. If they hear what we're saying, they say God must really be great. 
We can really trust him. He's worth believing in. Back in 2015, Aaron and I were going to seminary and we got an email from the senior pastor of the church that was supporting us while we went to school. And the senior pastor wanted to let us know that he had cancer. And he emailed the church members and he emailed all of us and asked us to pray for him. And here was the remarkable thing. If you read the email, he didn't ask us to pray for God to heal him. He didn't ask for that. Instead, he said, let me have an opportunity to testify to the doctors and the nurses that Jesus is worthy. And at the end of his letter he, that he was writing to all of us, he, he had this quote from John Piper. And, and he ended his letter with these words. And I'm actually going to end my sermon tonight with these words. Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. He said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So it is with cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. Here is a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is clear that suffering in all its forms is part of the curse, but in this world it is a part of life. On the one hand, we thank you that we haven't suffered as much as we could have. On the other, we ask you to give us your perspective on suffering. Give us the hearts of disciples so that we joyfully receive whatever you send our way because we know that it's for our good. And we know that you're going to use it to make us more like you. Your word is clear, O oh God, the worst may happen. Our bodies may well be destroyed, but no one and no thing can touch our souls. Give us heavenly priorities so that we want holiness more than we want comfort. Give us hearts that yearn to know what it means to follow you, even if the trials take us through your furnace, because you promise us that they will. We can endure anything as long as you go with us. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Mm.